Hi, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and I'm pleased to have with us for this month's podcast Dr. Mark Pimentel, who is a senior associate editor for the Red Journal, and he is the executive director of the Medically Associated Science and Technology, or MAST, program at Cedars-Sinai. Mark, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to do this. So you've written an article, uh, in, a review article in the Red Journal entitled Influence of Dietary Restriction on Irritable Bowel Syndrome. And that's what we'll be talking about today. This is such an important and common topic that many of our patients have questions about and many of our readers have questions about. So I'm really happy that you're with us today to talk about this article. Now, in the article, you point out right up front that so many patients with irritable bowel syndrome, you know, use dietary control in managing their symptoms, up to 84%, you point out, and up to two-thirds of patients with IBS attribute their GI symptoms to food. So why do you think so many patients think food is affecting their symptoms and are manipulating their diet to try and um, solve their symptoms? Well, the answer to that is very complex. I mean, first of all, patients often want to help themselves. So one of the best ways to help yourself if you're experiencing symptoms, especially digestive symptoms, uh, patients sort of see it very unidimensionally. Food in the gut, gut symptoms must be due to food. It's it's a lot more complex than that, obviously, and we can get into it. But these patients are trying to self-help. So often, even in my clinics, I would say by the time they see me, they've tried a number of techniques, restrictions, and we'll get into some of those in order to try and ameliorate their symptoms. Often in irritable bowel syndrome, bloating is a major component and gas production is believed to be at least a component of bloating. Uh, So fermentation in the gut can affect bloating. Food can affect fermentation. And so patients put two and two together and start attempting these diets, often unsuccessfully, obviously, because they're still in our offices uh, seeking attention. But it's extremely common and the myriad of things that they've tried uh, is, is sometimes quite amazing. So you and I both live in Southern California, uh, where diet seems to be uh, always the first line of therapy for many of our patients. And gluten-free diet in particular is very popular uh, among our patients. And I'm sure many of our listeners have patients who are interested in gluten restriction. Now, of course, we know gluten-free diet is a cornerstone for managing celiac disease. But what are the data that it helps with irritable bowel syndrome in those that don't clearly have immunologic evidence of celiac? Yeah, as you say, I mean, celiac disease, it's obvious. Gluten restriction is the primary therapy, but it's a little more complicated with irritable bowel syndrome because patients put themselves on a gluten restriction, and and some of that is internet hype. Some of that is actually substantiated data, although we can argue uh, that the depth of the data is still shallow. But there is a concept called non-celiac gluten sensitivity where you don't actually have the full manifestations of celiac, but you're gluten sensitive. In other words, if you're on gluten, you have bloating, maybe some abdominal pain, uh, maybe some change in bowel function, but if you restrict gluten, you feel better or you feel less symptomatic. The the problem there, and it's maybe less so these days, but the problem there is traditionally going on a gluten-free diet was very challenging. And by definition, if you're on gluten-free, you're essentially restricting carbohydrates. And restricting carbohydrates also restricts fermentation in the gut and it has a lot of downstream downstream consequences. So it's complicated as to why some patients, and it's not everybody, but some patients feel better restricting gluten. Now today in the supermarket, the supermarket has an extensive section, especially in places like Whole Foods, where you can get gluten-free products very readily that are still carbohydrate-based, and so you're not necessarily restricting carbohydrates. But there is some good data in, in some of these trials to suggest restricting gluten might help some patients. 
So what do you recommend to your patients then who, you know, let's say have bloating, some diarrhea, you've tested them for celiac disease and it's negative uh, and they really want to start a gluten-free diet? I mean, do you, do you send them to a nutritionist? Do you endorse this practice or uh, what, do you, what do you pragmatically tell them? Well, I think what's clear from the literature, and maybe I'm jumping to a bit of a conclusion here as we go through this, but mm-hmm. I think what's very clear is that a good dietitian is very helpful in patients where you feel that their symptoms, their gastrointestinal symptoms have a diet component because it's almost better for a tailored diet by a dietitian who identifies each and every trigger point and then starts to restrict based on those trigger points or those trigger foods rather than saying, okay, just gluten-free or just low FODMAP or just lactose or dairy-free, rather to identify specific foods and customize it because I think customizing probably is your best bet for success. The problem is not everybody can afford a dietitian and sometimes insurance companies don't pay for the kind of services and extensive counseling that's provided. So it's a little challenging, but in my practice, I try to use a dietitian as much as possible where a patient can afford it. Mm-hmm. Now, we published a uh, paper in the Red Journal last year. It was a meta-analysis, uh, I believe it was Alex Ford, uh, looking at you know randomized control trials of uh, different diets uh, in IBS. And uh, they had identified two randomized trials in, uh, in IBS. One was positive and one was sort of borderline. And they overall conclude that there isn't a statistically significant benefit of gluten-free diet in IBS, although uh, there was sort of a trend towards significance. So, you know, some of our readers, you know, may or may not be, you know, interested in meta-analytic data. I recently gave a lecture on this topic last week, and one of the questions from the audience was, should we believe in meta-analyses? So, that's more of a philosophical question, but if the meta-analysis says, you know, gluten-free diet is not statistically significant, should we, how do you you interpret that or how do you incorporate that result that we published in our own journal uh, into your clinical practice? Yeah, and so as I sort of alluded to, I I don't really subscribe to endorsing gluten-free in all patients because I think, as your paper points out, the data aren't there yet. There's nothing conclusive to say everybody should be. Otherwise, we'd be doing gluten-free on all these patients, even if we get 20% of the patients better. But the data just don't substantiate that yet. I think our approach is to try to reduce fermentables in the gut. And if you reduce carbs maybe it's gluten-free, maybe it's low FODMAP, you do get a reduction in bloating and the consequence of bloating, which is some degree of discomfort or pressure or abdominal pain. And so we try to approach it from that point of view rather than from saying, okay, it should be gluten-free or okay, it should be purely low FODMAP, but more to try and reduce the fermentation in the gut is, I think, our general approach based on the literature. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, one of the things that I learned that I never knew before reading your review article was that lactose is found in all mammalian milk with the exception of sea lions. So I had no idea that sea lions don't, don't have, uh, don't have lactose, but you made that point with a reference in, in the paper. Uh, but this was part of a, um, a larger discussion about what is the role of lactose restriction, um, like except for our patients, I guess, drinking sea lion milk. Other than that, um, lactose restriction is relevant for other types of milk where we think that might be contributing to bloating and diarrhea. So what are the data that lactose restriction uh, has any role in IBS management? 
Well, first of all, and, and my wife who uh, runs a diabetes program here at Cedars says to me all the time, we're the only species on the planet who routinely drink another species' milk. Um, and the, is that kind of weird the right to think thing? about, it, isn't it? Yes, kind of weird. And so is that the right thing to do to begin with or not? But sinking our teeth into sort of the lactose specifically, if you think about lactose, the average human digestive tract has a certain capacity for lactose, which diminishes over time. The problem is the terminology. What is lactose intolerance versus lactose maldigestion? And this is where people get confused, even fellows when we're teaching them, because lactose intolerance means you drink milk, you get bloated or you have symptoms. It doesn't mean you're not absorbing or digesting. If I had somebody drink a gallon of milk in front of me, they will be bloated and uncomfortable because it's exceeding their capacity to absorb and digest. Similarly, if they have changes in the microbiome where the microbiome is now approaching the milk, they could have the entire length of small of small intestine, but if they have, for example, bacterial overgrowth, they will be intolerant of the milk, but then if you do a lactose tolerance test, the milk's being absorbed or the lactose, I should say, is being absorbed perfectly. And in a study we did more than 10 years ago, we could see that only 3 out of 20 IBS patients were truly lactose maldigesting, but the breath test with lactose was positive in 13 out of 20 and looked identical to a lactulose breath test, which is used for overgrowth. So the question is, what's causing the intolerance? Is it a microbiome problem? Is it a transit problem? Or is it a true maldigestion problem? And this sort of very confusing story that I just told you confounds a lot of the literature as to what they find in their studies because they don't take into account all these variables. And so it's sort of a mishmash. But in general, a lot of IBS patients have already decided that, you know, avoiding milk, I would say in the last year of the new IBSD, for example, patients I've seen, probably 80% are eliminating dairy in some way, shape, or form because they find dairies making them worse. But having eliminated dairy, they're still in my office. They still have symptoms. It's just that dairy makes it worse. So it's a complex issue with lactose, and studies need to be better designed to look for, you know, brush border enzyme activity versus transit versus microbial colonization. Mm-hmm. So it may not be sort of the um, fundamental cause of symptoms for a lot of our patients, but it, it could be something modifiable to help reduce some symptoms and maybe enhance enhance other symptoms. So something certainly to keep an eye on, and we need some more research in, in that area. All right, so another uh, really hot topic for the past few years has been the low FODMAP diet, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, and polyols. And uh, we've talked a lot about low FODMAP in the journal and in previous podcasts. Uh, where, where are we these days with low FODMAP for irritable bowel syndrome, both in terms of the evidence and, and your practice? Yeah, so like everything, there's a, a new thing, then there's excitement around the new thing, and then there's hyper excitement around the new thing, and then there's more data saying, okay, well, maybe this doesn't work for everybody. So I think low FODMAP is going through that cycle. In the beginning, it's very optimistic. And what I like to tell my patients is up front, I said, if you ate absolutely nothing, you would be less bloated. And the reason I say that is is because it means that the more food you put that can ferment in the gut, the more bloated you get. The, the low FODMAP takes a, an extraordinary effort to reduce all or most of the fermentable products that a person would ingest in an average day, restricts them down to the bare minimum, and then over the course of three months or after three months, you start to reintroduce. And the data are quite strong suggesting that the low FODMAP diet is effective at temporarily reducing symptoms. But then what do you do 
do after three months. You start reintroducing. But what we now know, based on studies by Bill Che and, and another study that's recently been published, but I'll start with Bill Che's study. He's suggesting that after three months, if you don't start to reintroduce, you can actually get micronutrient nutritional deficiencies because the low FODMAP diet is fairly restrictive. The second thing that is recently found is that you start to lose diversity of the microbiome in the stool with this very restrictive diet, again, suggesting that this is not a long-term solution, but it's a good acute treatment. And if with a dietitian you can figure out foods to reintroduce and start to bring things back in, it might be an okay long-term solution, but it has to be modified. So yes, three months. And then after that, it's still a mystery as to what to do. Uh, and I think we need more data in the long run. Mm-hmm. I think that's key is to understand conceptually that this isn't a long-term diet. It's sort of almost like a diagnostic test initially to see if there's an improve, improvement in symptoms. And then, you know, it's important to reintroduce systematically uh, FODMAPs until hopefully identifying a culprit or one or more culprits. Uh, you mentioned Bill Che. Bill Che and I uh, did create a website, an unbranded a website called My, My GI Nutrition that is designed to help patients uh, go through that process and answer questions about low FODMAP. So any listeners are interested in that as a resource for their patients, feel free to let them know about that. So we need more data on low FODMAP. Um, it is worth pointing out that that same meta-analysis from Paul Moyady and, and company Alex Ford and others also looked at uh, low FODMAP and, and they found a number of randomized trials and uh, ended up concluding that there is currently statistically significant evidence of benefit, although the evidence is, is a bit conflicting and a sort of intermediate quality. So, as usual, we need more data to kind of make definitive decisions on that. All right, so why don't we move ahead? Uh, there's a couple other diets that you cover in your article. Again, it's an excellent article, and for those of you listening, uh, I re- strongly recommend, if you're interested in this uh, this topic, to spend uh, spend some time, sit down, and actually read the whole article. We're just touching on the highlights here. But the next one is the so-called spicy food restriction diet. And we hear about this all the time. It tends to come up in GERD in particular, but this notion of spicy foods, you know, burning the surface, the lining of the intestines and causing symptoms, causing pain. You know, what, what do we know about spicy food restriction and IBS? Well, I actually love this section because it's kind of it's kind of the thing that we hear in clinic. Patients say, well, I can't eat spicy food. And it's such a nebulous concept. What does it mean, spicy food? Does it mean that there's a lot of ginger in it or does it mean there's a lot of pepper in it? Because there's various definitions of what is spicy or rich in spice, I guess, is another way to look at something that's not just hot, but actually has a lot of spices, quote unquote, in it. And so, first of all, there aren't good definitions on what spicy means. The second second thing is there's not a lot of good data, except for a few trials, which we've highlighted in the paper. But there is a lot of evidence in terms of capsaicin and how capsaicin can interact with the enteric ner- nervous system, augmenting pain responses and so forth. So, And we do highlight some studies, one of which shows that if you ingest a lot of spicy, meaning hot spicy, capsaicin-containing spices, you can increase the potency of your IBS symptoms if you already have IBS. Some interesting data from the Middle East where spice is included in food and it doesn't have to be that hot spice, but more a conglomerate of spice spices together that it can make or even con- contribute to IBS in some way. Although, again, it's single trials, small numbers of patients in some instances, but it, it's an interesting topic that needs more work, to be honest. And the reason I included it here is because patients are always saying this, and we have so little data to substantiate this in real time and prospective work. And I think I sort of offered this 
section as more of a challenge to those who study food in IBS rather than sort of a recommendation on what to do. So when a patient says, you know, spicy food, I mean, what questions do you follow up with? I mean, you mentioned there's different types of spicy food. I mean, does it help you knowing what you now know after writing this section to dig in a little deeper with the patient? And what what specific questions should our readers be thinking about? And how do the answers actually help them, you know, advise the patient about diet? I feel like I'm going to give you a very vague answer, but the example that I get a lot of times is when I eat spicy food, especially Indian food from Indian restaurants, not to pick on a particular great cultural food, but the problem with Indian food is that, yeah, there's a lot of spices in there, but maybe it's the lentils in there. Maybe it's the garbanzo Mm -hmm. bean flour, maybe. And so, again, as a gastroenterologist where you have one hour with a patient, you can really take a long time trying to sort out what's going on with what's in their diet and what's contributing. Could be the spices, could it be the other components of the food? And it's so difficult and challenging to know. I mean, for example, there's a section on curcumin. Curcumin is actually could be helpful. It's antimicrobial, it's anti-inflammatory, and yet it's part of the spicy composition of Indian food. And so maybe the curcumin is good, maybe the garbanzo is bad. And so, again, every meal is so different here in the U.S. People aren't eating, like in, in the Middle East, you're eating Middle Eastern food every day, perhaps. Here, we're eating Greek one night, Italian the next, Indian food the next, Persian the next. I mean, we're so mixing it up. It's so hard from day to day to kind of figure out what's going into the hard body. Hard to disentangle. It's just so, so conflated. And, you know, I just sometimes wonder, at least in the GERD side of things, which we're not talking about today, sometimes spicy food just means high volume food, too. <laughs> You've just eaten a lot of stuff. Well, or you go to an Indian restaurant because yeah. they're all eating high volume these days. Or they go to an Indian restaurant on the way out the door, they take a scoop of peppermint or whatever, you know, is sitting there at the uh, on the way out the door and that opens up their LES and now they've got reflux and it had nothing to do with the with the actual yeah. content of the food. But, so it's a very uh, it's a murky area as you say and but it's it's an interesting read for those that want to learn more about it. So I think we have time just to just very quickly our last topic is dietary fiber. You know, we've been talking about fiber forever with IBS. And, you know, there are meta-analyses on this too. And the meta-analyses do suggest that certain fibers, particularly, you know, soluble fibers, can improve symptoms of IBS. Uh, as I recall, number needed to treat somewhere between 7 and 11. And so, you know, we've got these statistics, but what do we, you know, what do we know about it these days? And, and how are you, uh, how are you advising your patients around fiber content? I think the benefit of fiber is that there's a long history of fiber and a fairly large number of trials that have looked at fiber. I think what's consistent and and is best summarized with fiber is that fiber helps constipation, no doubt. Uh, It accelerates transit. It does a number of things to PYY and other receptors in, in the gastrointestinal tract to changing both water secretion and so forth. But so the bottom line is constipation is improved. The challenge is that you can get more bloated. It doesn't necessarily change pain. So a lot of times when we look at guidelines for IBS or or when we're trying to really evidence-based look at how to improve IBS, we really try to look at is IBS improved or is only one symptom of IBS improved? Because IBS is not one symptom. Uh, And so I think the conclusion of fiber is constipation gets better, maybe not the other stuff. And so if constipation is the only symptom of their IBS and the others are more mild, then fiber might be a good choice for that in that individual patient. If bloating is a big component plus constipation, you may want to reconsider what your choices are. And so I think that's really the best way to summarize fiber. So for your patients with IBS-C who you're thinking about fiber as an adjunctive therapy, what formulations do you suggest and what kind of doses do you suggest? 
I think in general, the literature points to low-soluble uh, fiber being less problematic, less abdominal pain, less bloating. And so I think most of us gravitate towards soluble fiber if we're going to use mm-hmm. fiber like in our patients. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've heard, you know, 20 grams, 25, 30 grams even um, uh, is really associated with the increased intestinal transit. And, you know, that's a, that's a fair amount of fiber. I think, you know, a lot of our patients maybe take a scoop or two scoops of, of psyllium and call it a day, and that, that's not even close to 25 grams. So uh, part that's of it is right. just if you're going to do it, make sure they make sure they even they get enough of it so we can determine if it's helping or not. Right. The benefit so, of fiber, though, is you can take as much as you want because it's uh, usually a powder. And so it's not a pill. You don't have to cut it down, and you don't. You know, you can't. You can titrate it very easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like any good review article, it ends by, with a call for uh, for more data, uh, more high quality randomized controlled trials, so that we can write another review article, hopefully a few years <laughs> from now. Uh, which what's on your wish list for kind of what's the most pressing data that we need now for your for your next review article in five or ten years? I think I think what we need is if if diet which is definitely on the patient's mind, is the mainstay of how we might manage patients, at least conservatively and non-pharmacologically. I think long-term data is what we need. Uh, We have short-term trials, but we don't have any long-term trials on what diet is the most suitable or most generalizable. Uh, But in the end, I, I... predict that a good dietitian is going to be your best bet on all of this, um, and that would be just my guess. Well, great advice and a great article. So, again, take a look at the article if you have a chance. It's entitled Influence of Dietary Restriction on Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. No, it's great talking to you as well, Brennan. So until next time, again, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief with Brian Lacey for the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and thanks for listening. 